Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Eric, how are you doing this evening? Oh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Uh, yeah, of course. I'm a research professor at Tufts University, uh, but I wear a couple of different hats. The, the first is as a scientist. I got my PhD working with Giulio Tononi on trying to craft some of the first kind of well-formalized mathematical theories of consciousness. And in my research career, I'm interested in consciousness and I'm interested in emergence and kind of taking subjects that are traditionally philosophical and making them a lot more, hopefully, scientific. Um, I'm also an author. I grew up in my mother's independent bookstore, so I've always kind of wanted to be an author and was surrounded by books. So it was very, very natural to me. Um, so I, I published a novel last year, The Revelations, um, through Abrams Books. And um, I also run a substack called The Intrinsic Perspective, where I sort of combine some of my scientific interests with my literary interests. Gotcha. Do you see kind of a, a common thread that ties your work together between your writing, um, uh, this work on consciousness and, and math and, um, and biology? Like, is there a common thread there? Or is it more just like these are kind of discrete interests and, and they don't really bleed together very much? Well, the reason why my subsect is called the intrinsic perspective is that I think that we can very broadly view the world as um, sort of having a scientific image. And that scientific image is uh, what one might call extrinsic. It is based on mechanism or causation. Um, it is modelable in terms of sort of the physical laws that we know. And then there's also the intrinsic perspective on the world, which is sort of what everyone is thinking and, and feeling hidden within the bones of their skull. And that perspective of the world is also the world of the writer, right? Writing is about communication from within your own little well of solipsism to other people who are stuck in their own little wells of solipsism. And you're trying to sort of put something together, um, either communicate an idea or communicate uh, a what it is likeness, so communicate what it is like to be a person who lives, you know, in a certain way or at a certain time. Um, and you might do that, for example, by having a character in a novel that's like that person. And, and so what I'm interested in is where the extrinsic meets the intrinsic. So it, it's sort of like, um, it's like the shelf of the world, right? It's like, it's like, it's like, it's a place where there are like great, titanic, sometimes terrifying, sometimes beautiful forces at work. Um, and that includes, for example, the search for a scientific theory of consciousness, which would be sort of the extrinsic attempt to understand the intrinsic perspective. Ah, super cool. So is it something like uh, understanding kind of the intersection between uh, quality, qualia and reality? Is, is it something like that? Or is that too kind of simplistic? No, I mean, I think I think it's a pretty reasonable description. Um, you know, I, everything I do is sort of 
connected via a constellation of um, of a couple different main themes. Um, so, for example, I've recently been doing some work on dreams and the relationship between dreams and fictions, and uh, of course, that's that 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 is also in a sense right. Like in in that case, I'm using the intrinsic perspective, which is sort of the phenomenology of dreams to try to actually come up with sort of like a theory of, of art. I mean, that, that, that's really one of the things I've been, I've been working a great deal on is scientifically grounding our notion of an aesthetic spectrum um, in something that's m more valid than like, say, Steven Pinker's description of music as auditory cheesecake. I, I love that. I love that. I, how did you originally come across it, these ideas? You know, uh, was there a single moment where you're like, you know, this is these these are the themes I want to explore, or is it kind of emergent over time as you read more? You know, as a kid, you said, uh, you know, you grow up in your parents' bookshop, which is which is awesome. Uh, was it just like reading a lot of literature, or getting exposed to a lot of different ideas, and it kind of just coalesced over time? Well, it's always very hard to, you know, appropriately track your own your own motives for things, right? right? But but in, in one sense, I mean, there was sort of like a logical decision that was made at a certain point where I was old enough to know sort of what I was capable and what I wasn't capable of. And so I knew, for example, that I would never be capable of being like a string theorist. Just I, I just don't have that sort of like the really, really high level technical mathematical ability is something that manifests w when, when you're young. And I, I just didn't really have that. Um, and and so that 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 sort of limits your your options. Um, and looking at science, I thought because of my background in sort of fiction writing, like I was already writing when I was a young teenager, um, I thought, well, maybe I should go towards something where being creative is is going to be an advantage, right? Like rather than being analytical, can I go to something where originality is going to be much more important? right, than like sheer quantitative ability. And there are a number of like really open areas in science where we just frankly don't know very much and we sort of need good, good theories. Um, and, and so I've sort of made my home in, in those cases, in, in those places. Um, and, and, and one could view that almost like how an organism adapts to a niche or something like that. Right. But I, I've been very lucky along the way. And certainly I think that there's a, uh, a, a, a certain serendipity, uh, of like what I work on and, 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 you know, my progress on it to the degree that there is, or there isn't. I, I really like that. I really like that. Um, that, that framing, I'm, I'm curious, what areas of science do you think uh, need more original theories, need more originality and, and creativity at this point? Well, one is in fundamental physics. So physics is, physics is not finished. We need, you know, the most brilliant minds to go into physics um, and, and to improve our understanding of the fundamentals of reality and, and, and move us past the standard model, which, which will one day, I think, fail um, if it hasn't already. And um, so, so, so clearly, like some very big picture physics stuff. Um, what I was very interested in was consciousness, uh, particularly because it felt like no one was working on consciousness. I mean, in the time that I became interested in being a scientist, consciousness research has grown significantly since then. It's still minuscule. It receives 
less than 1% of 1% of neuroscience funding. I'm making that number up if there's some other <laughs> number that's actually true. Uh, but, um, but, but that's, that's I, I think, well within the order of magnitude um, of how little funding consciousness research actually gets. And there was almost no one working seriously on it. And so that looked to me like, um, like an open opportunity to maybe get in there and do some, some fundamental research. You know, unfortunately, at the same time, it's also perhaps the hardest problem that humanity has ever encountered. I think in many ways harder than things like new physics, because at least we sort of know what we expect the answer to be with regards to new physics. We sort of, I can't, you know, tell you what those equations will be, but I sort of know very broadly what those equations might look like, right? Or, or right, let's right. say a young hotshot graduate student going into that field might know that. Yeah. Um, and they all have intuitions about that. With consciousness, it's, it's far less clear, right? So we don't even know what good theories look like. Um, and, and so there's a sense in which we're, we're very, very sort of far away from, from understanding it or having a good, a good understanding of it. And there's, there's a couple other various, like, like obvious ones, um, like neuroscience as a whole is incredibly underdeveloped, uh, although not for, not for lack of effort and funding. Um, I think there are some really interesting questions in evolutionary theory and particularly also now in AI. So there, there, there's still like a, you know, a, a broad number of places where, um, where the contours of the map are not well drawn in yet. There's a, there's a lot of white space, um, it seems. So, so I, Hamay has this idea of having like, a, you have to have an attack on a problem um, or else it's, it's, it's like really difficult to make pro progress. And it kind of sounds like what you're talking about with consciousness um, research. You know, what was your first kind of attack you found to the problem to try and like figure out like what's going on and, and try and start trying to form a theory, if that makes sense? Yeah, so at the time, and I'm thinking back now, when, when I became sure that I wanted to go to go into consciousness research and basically have that be the problem that I, I spent my, my PhD working on, Yeah, that would be have been around 2008, 2009. At the time in America, there was no one working on consciousness in a way that I considered to be serious, except one man whose name is Giulio Tononi, who is probably the first person to propose a well-formalized theory of consciousness. That's something that um, certainly is a good candidate for what a theory of consciousness might look like, right? So it's, it's really, if you think about it as just, does this thing even sort of look correct at all, <laughs> right? That the answer to that with IIT is maybe yes. And that seems like an awfully hedged statement, but if you compare <laughs> it to pretty much everything else, it's just worlds and leagues above it. So I went to go work with, with Julio to try to help him develop IIT, as it's called, um, his, his theory of consciousness, based on how information is integrated in complex systems. And that sort of took me down a, a a, a pretty big, a pretty big rabbit hole. But that was my initial interest and reason was just that um, having looked around at sort of the, the contenders, I saw a lot of things that were basically just metaphors, things like maybe consciousness is a big global workspace. Uh, okay, <laughs> maybe consciousness is, is fame in the brain. It's like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's put some math on that. Like, like, what do you mean by fame, right? You mean the, the degree of information sharing? What, what, what's in and what's out? 
to what degree is something in and what degree is something out? How do you get a stream? How do you solve the binding problem? Like how, how do you do any of these things? And, and almost none of these theories had any teeth as it were, except IIT. IIT, I think has, has some teeth. I like that. I like that. And, and I'm curious just for, you know, we have a lot of young scientists that listen. Uh, what was your, did you just straight up cold email? You know, did you, know, you, you look for someone who had a robust theory, you cold emailed them and, and said, you know, Hey, can I come help? Like, can I come mop the floors? What, what was that process like just mechanically? Um, yeah, I believe I actually contacted Julia after I was accepted to, uh, so, so I applied to the university of Wisconsin. So he's, he's at the university of Wisconsin in Madison. Nice. And, um, it's a very big research school, but you know, it's not, it's not Harvard, right? Like, so it's, it's not, it's not a sort of place where the graduate school acceptance rate is 3%. It's, it's probably, you know, 10%, you know, yeah. 12%, something like that. So if, if he had been at, you know, Oxford or MIT or these other places where they're, they're basically just rolling die to see who gets in um, with like a 3% chance, right? <laughs> um, so basically, there's nothing you can sort of do a priori that will actually ensure, ensure your chances in that. But so luckily he was, he was just out of place that, that I was able to get into. Um, I think I only applied to two graduate schools, um, which is insane. And any, any like my, my career in science has been, has been by outside metrics co- completely crazy. Um, and, and I would never recommend almost any of the steps that I took at any point in time, but things like I only applied to graduate schools, one with New York university. Um, and there was no one at NYU who was doing anything serious with, with consciousness, but the philosophy department was very good. So, um, they had David Chalmers and some other people. So I figured, okay, I wouldn't be able to work with any sort of great scientists, but maybe I would be able to sort of, um, still be where a lot of the interesting thought around consciousness was, and that was sort of bleed into my science. And then the other was the University of Wisconsin. And, um, and, and I believe I basically just cold emailed Julio after, after getting accepted um, for the initial interview. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. I, I like that. I, I want to talk a little bit about your research now. Um, what's your sense of the biological function of dreams? Like, why do we dream? Like, what's the process for? Yeah, so this is a, a theory that I advanced or, or, or sort of put together, one might say, um, about a couple of years ago. And it was originally actually born. Uh, so, so, so just to give some people background, right? One of the things that Giulio Tononi is very famous for is also his model of why it is that we sleep, which is something called synaptic homeostasis. And the idea is, is that learning in general uh, engenders a net potentiation of your synapses. The synaptic strength is, is basically getting too strong as you're awake and you need sleep to sort of downscale all the synapses. Um, I actually don't think that that hypothesis is really going to end up being true. Um, I think it's a very nice hypothesis. Um, I think it's like an elegant hypothesis, but um, so there is a sense in which, you know, there, if you're interested in consciousness, you have to sort of be interested in, in what, what happens when consciousness goes away and why does it, why does it go away when it does? And therefore, you know, they're a very good sleep lab. So I had a, a background in, in sleep research and I had been writing an essay about the purpose of, of fictions actually, and why it is that we humans so love fictional stories and um, because this is again something that's interested me since since i was young and 
um, I kind of realized that you could you make the analogy that fictions are like artificial dreams. And I don't think that that analogy is is that original, but I took it very seriously. So I said, okay, well, what if, what if we take it incredibly seriously? And therefore we have two mysteries uh, that look very similar. One of which is why do humans care about what happens at Hogwarts, right? And, and spend a bunch of time, you know, talking about all these imaginary lies. Um, and why does the brain make up a bunch of random imaginary hallucinatory BS every night? These seemed actually possibly quite related to me. And so, um, so I, I started developing this theory. And, and actually what fell out of it was basically I put all the fiction aside to just focus on the theory of dreams that fell out of it, which was this notion that the goal of dreams, uh, the evolved purpose of dreams is to help prevent overfitting, where overfitting is a very common, basically ubiquitous uh, problem that crops up whenever you try to train a complex um system that learns like an artificial neural network. And in general, it will often sort of memorize the details too well. And it, therefore, it, it sort of won't generalize to new training data. Um, and my thought was, this seems sort of inescapable. And also that mammalian brains can't ever turn off learning. I mean, we, we, people have really not reckoned reckon with this, but with, when you're training an artificial neural network, you can sort of stop it at a certain point and say, okay, I'm, I'm done now, right? You, you, you've been appropriately trained. That never happens in mammals, right? So we're constantly learning. And this, this the, your, the plasticity in your brain does not shut off. You're learning as much when you watch a TV show as you are when you're studying for a math class, right? Like, so the plasticity in your brain never, never shuts off. And so there seems like there needs to be some sort of counteracting force. And the proposal is that dreams are basically a combination of uh, techniques that, that machine learning theorists have already basically found out about. And the brain also stumbles across sort of an intersection of those techniques and begins to do nightly dreaming in a way that sort of is giving your brain augmented data in a way that assists and promotes generalization. And to me, it's sort of the first theory of dreams that actually gives a good reason why dreams would be so sort of weird and Lynchian and dreamlike. Makes a lot of sense. I, I'm curious, you know, with all your work on consciousness, um, and, and you mentioned a lot of Mel terms like overfitting and things like this, um, do you think it will be possible for us to make machines conscious or is that like it's a different thing, it's a different class um, that doesn't make sense? I, 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 I very much wish I knew the answer to that. Um, the thing is, is that the way that most people think about consciousness is that they basically pick some sort of pet theory. Their pet theory is like totally wrong. Um, and then they sort of just harp on this pet theory, like for the rest of their, their lives. This is the normal intellectual life cycle of people who, who talk about consciousness. They just pick something like, oh, maybe consciousness doesn't exist. I'm going to make up, you know, a bunch of reasons why that crazy hypothesis is somehow true or or maybe maybe it's it, the brain's just a computer what's so mysterious right and then i'm going to argue for that or or uh, it's just a big workspace you know where, where is the mystery there um, <laughs> i'm just gonna argue for that you know or you have like oh there's a hard problem that's never going to be solved but at least those people are sort of honest i think um about about how difficult the problem is um th this is actually why despite having a lot of training on consciousness um I've really focused on other problems that I found to be like solvable. Like I, I, I think that like you can have a theory of dreams and that like that, that I've advanced like a pretty, like a, like a, like a good one. Like it, it, it deserves to be considered. 
And that's because it's it's a solvable problem, right? Like it's just nowhere near as difficult to come up with with like an original hypothesis around dreaming as it is to come up with an actual original hypothesis around consciousness. So with consciousness, I generally wait until I have something really important to say. And so I've only published like, I don't know, three or four papers entirely on consciousness at all. Um, and but, but that leaves me in the epistemic position wherein when you ask me like, are machines going to be conscious? If, if I was sort of the standard, uh, you know, the, the sort, of, sort of standard intellectual talks about consciousness, I would have some sort of ready-made answer for you about yes or no and, and why, gotcha. you know, my reasoning as to why. But the, the simple answer is we have we have absolutely no idea. Uh, <laughs> and anyone who tells you that they have an idea is absolutely wrong. What I can tell That's you- very wrong. Yeah, but, but, but I think we, we can say some things. And one of those things is that is, is to judge the similarity or dissimilarity of the artificial neural networks that we have against the brain. And whether, and particularly the properties of the brain that our leading theories of consciousness pick out. So, as an example, right, what one could ask: Do these machines have anything that looks like a global workspace? And the answer, I think, is pretty reasonably no, unless you really stretch the definition of what we mean by global workspace. They, they generally don't have that. Are they integrated? Well, integrated information theory would say no, they're not integrated. So. What I sort of prefer to do to answer this question is to say, listen, almost all the leading theories we have are wrong, but they're probably somewhat sensitive to the true underlying theory along some axes. And all of them basically look at these feed forward artificial neural networks that don't have any sort of intrinsic activity um, or spontaneous activity. Uh, and that, you know, are brain-like in the very broad sense of having maybe things like tuning curves or sort of neural-like properties, but they certainly don't have the structure of the mammalian brain. They don't have its architecture. Uh, they don't have anything like that. As I said, they don't even have the inbuilt plasticity, right? You're, you're trained basically from the outside and manipulated by these outside algorithms. They're basically just huge Excel spreadsheets. And we can sort of say, you know, the likelihood that they're conscious is actually probably quite, quite low. So that just describes our own situation. It's, it doesn't really describe this sort of hypothetical um, th that you originally asked, but but I, I am somewhat confident in saying that probably the current techniques we should not consider as conscious. We shouldn't sort of take their statements as being based in intentionality or I-ness in the way that um, a human being's statements are, right? When GPT-3 says, help, I'm being tortured, you, you can just say, no, no, you're not. You're just auto-completing the text that I gave you, which was, is there anything wrong, GPT-3, that would shock me? And, you, and then they say, oh, yes, I'm being tortured. I love that. I, well, Eric, I, I really like that answer because I think that's the best answer any human on the planet could give me on that that um, that particular question. Um, it, it, yeah, it, and it, I want to take a left-hand turn here and talk about aristocratic tutoring, uh, something you've written, written a little bit about. Um, First of all, is it your sense that we have less outside contributors like Beethoven, Shakespeare's, et cetera, than we did like in the recent past? Uh, yes. And, and just to explain to the audience so, sort of why you're, we're jumping around a bit. So, yeah. you know, one of the things that I consider to be my job is to sort of, as I said, I don't, I'm not in the top, you know, quintile or whatever of like analytic ability. But I think maybe in terms of sort of like originality or like just, just coming up with things, uh, I would probably 
core near the top. I, that would be the one cognitive trait that I'm relatively sure of in myself. And so what I do is I sort of look around at fields and I look for low hanging fruit that really hasn't been picked. And one of which was that in, in education research, and notably, I didn't write an academic monograph about this because I didn't think it would get any attention if I did. And, um, and, and I didn't want to stumble through, you know, the entire academic literature to, just to make absolutely sure that no one said anything like this at all. But I, I do think that it's, it's relatively original in that certainly I had not heard it before. And so I, I advanced uh, an idea on my Substack, um, which I called the aristocratic tutoring hypothesis. And that took off recently and sort of went viral. Just to give the listeners sort of a background about why we're we're jumping into Beethoven. Um, And part of the article, or at least the sort of the opening of it, was this argument that if you look at genius, I mean, real world-spanning genius, um, geniuses that everyone would agree upon, particularly people who've made a serious one might say academic contribution, but who also sort of were publicly relevant, that this sort of genius has has declined. Um, And it's also declined along with polymathy. Like even if you look at somebody like Lewis Carroll, who I forget Lewis Carroll's exact dates, right? But he's still relatively recent. He's a mathematician, a children's book author, right? He's a logician. He's doing all sorts of really interesting things. It's really hard to name a contemporary figure who's even as sort of polymathic as like Lewis Carroll, right? Right. Um, and so I think in general, there, there has been this decline. And then that's something that is sort of worth exploring, you know, as, as to why. Yeah. Oh, I, I want to ask about the decline second here. It seems particularly weird in the concept of like uh, the Flynn effect. Like people's abstraction ability seems to be getting better over time, um, but yet we seem to be having less outsized talents. I mean, you are kind of a good example of someone who has been able to at least have interesting insights in a lot of different fields. Um, do you have any thoughts there, like uh, on what's going wrong? Well, so what, one thing that I advanced. I mean, I I think it's relatively obvious that. there's something about the the public education system, right? That does not do a very good job of making people interested, (laughs) deeply interested in intellectual subjects from a young age. You know, one could rant about sort of the public education system, I think, for a very long time. And uh, I would certainly include private education in there just the same. Like the structures are almost no difference, right? Slightly nicer, slightly better peers, slightly better teachers, but the structure of the entire thing is, is exactly the same. Yep. If you're at Andover or if you're at, you know, uh, you know, big, big inner city high school, they're, they're still basically the same structure. So looking historically, though, we see that the, the education system has clicked on only very recently. And so the question is, well, what did, what did people really do before then? And the answer is that, well, if you were rich, what you generally did was that you hired tutors and governesses. And if you were an aristocrat, especially, and these tutors and governesses would rear the child from a very young age. And a great example of this would be somebody like Bertrand Russell, um, who was one of the great geniuses of the 20th century, extraordinarily polymathic. He won the Nobel Prize in literature and also came up with, you know, probably the first, the first presage of uh, Girdle's incompleteness theorem in his paradox around set theory. So this is a very, very smart, intelligent individual of anyone who's ever lived, you know, he deserves the term genius. Um, and 
you know, his education was basically a revolving door of governesses and tutors. And these were often people who were experts in their field. I mean, he was taught by like Lord Kelvin's graduate student, basically. And like, you know, it's like Kelvin, like that Kelvin, right? <laughs> the, the Kelvin. Yeah, yeah. Like the Kelvin, right? So, so this is... This is like if we had, you know, young children being tutored by, you know, excitable, charismatic in their 20s, uh, you know, young scientists, like clearly that would have a very strong, a, a very strong effect. But the problem is, is that this this method of of education is not at all scalable. So, you know, I, I make clear in the article that I'm not making a moral claim that this was somehow really good, or we should go back to that and aristocrats should sort of separate their, their, their children out. But it is certainly true that um, I think that, that particularly at the very upper echelons of society, there was a huge amount of one-on-one tutoring going on. And we know that tutoring is, is basically the most effective form of education. And that's been shown in, in study after study. And so we, we can just look at the decline of tutoring and say, you know, maybe, maybe the simple fact is, is that many of these great geniuses had, you know, what we would now consider almost completely unfair advantages in terms of their education early on. And this is why, for example, the history of intellectual life is often, has often been confined to the rich. I mean, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, you know, mistake that the, the number of like peasants who made serious intellectual contributions uh, up up until the industrial era was was so low. I mean, astonishingly low. You like you pick pick any intellectual from like fifteen hundred to sixteen hundred and see how many of them were really like lower class. And the answer is almost none. They're almost all aristocrats or or upper class. And met, and as far as I can tell, many of them had tutors and went through sort of this 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 personalized um, form of education. And I think that it's it's basically the one way we know of to create geniuses. It doesn't always create geniuses. I certainly would never make that claim. And I wouldn't make the claim that any child, you know, could sort of be made into a world towering genius. I think it involves a lot of sort of innate talents, although maybe maybe IQ less so than some people would like to believe. I, I actually think that there's all sorts of sort of cognitive talents that people can have that aren't captured by something like IQ. But the uh, but the fundamental fact remains that, you know, all these people are, are at least it seems like this method of education was incredibly effective and probably maybe one of the few surefire ways of creating geniuses. And we even had people who did that, people who set out to make their ch- child a genius. And in many cases, they end up succeeding. And there are historical examples of this. Uh, John Stuart Mill being uh, uh, probably one of the most famous. I'm curious, how much of it do you think it of? How much value do you think aristocratic tutoring um, gave geniuses? Uh, it, it seems like there's two veins. I'm not saying this very well, but there, there's, there were two veins. There's um, this idea that you're not beating curiosity out of people. It seems to be like really important. Um, so you're willing to go out and search because it's kind of fun and it's not just like this rote memorization or whatever, whatever else is gone. And then there's like a mastery learning, like Bloom 2 Sigma. It's just much more effective and you get a lot more information in people's heads. Um, if you had to weight the two, which one do you think is more important or are they both just kind of important and it's it's really difficult to parse out? Yeah, I, I actually don't. I think that there it's a bit of a mistake to think that the mastery of the material is what's making the genius. Um, 
it could be read that way because when you look at the studies of tutoring, you know, they're limited to what you can measure, like the measurables of education. Right. So, of course, they show this big boost in, for example, the amount of crystallized knowledge that a student has, like their memory of things or something like that. But we all know that that's only one dimension of what a teacher should impart. An example being that, you know, what you want in a, in a, someone who's learning history and what you want in, let's say, a young historian who is tutoring your child would be to impart for them like an interest in, for example, ancient Rome, not just memorizing the dates of, you know, all the emperors of ancient Rome, right? You want to stimulate this sort of intellectual interest and hopefully you sort of stimulate it enough that it runs their entire life. And maybe when they're, you know, 75, they, they crack open a, a new, you know, book on, on Marcus Aurelius or something. And who was also had like 17 tutors growing up. And, you know, th that, that sort of spark, like what I would argue would be that probably the, the effects of tutoring extend to all the things that are sort of non-measurables in education. So like not only is one-on-one is -on -one tutoring much more effective at like getting the information into someone's skull, but clearly all the, the extra effects of education, I would argue that is probably equally, if not more so effective at those things, like getting the kid excited about the subject um, or, or so on. So that's my suspicion. But of course, you can't, you can't really like measure and improve these things very well. Very, very interesting. Um, I'm curious. I want to talk a little bit about your writing now, if that's okay. Um, ha have you thought about trying to improve writing process over time? Do you have any tips on, on how to improve one's writing? Um, or is it just something where you just, it's just reps, you just put in a lot of work, uh, you talk about interesting things, and that's how you get better? Well, I would say there's a, there is a difference between writing fiction and nonfiction. Fiction is a bit more perfectible. It's a bit more like teachable. You can teach someone how to write nonfiction. Gotcha. And you can kind of just copy, copy the greats or the people that you like. What you'll find if you if you write fiction is that if you if you try to just copy the greats or people that you like, you'll write yeah like serviceable prose, but it won't be very good. <laughs> it'll be, it'll it won't be, good be it, it'll be it'll just be like soulless, gotcha. right? It'll just be soulless, and like fiction is so sensitive to soul, right? Like, yeah. is there is there soulness, right? Like, so when I wrote the revelations, which you know, to, to write a novel nowadays is just like one of the dumbest things you can do, right? It's just such a, the, the amount of time that goes into like crafting a really good novel is like years and years of work. Like you, you cannot skimp on that. And then sort of, you know, the whole publishing process is incredibly difficult and getting it out into the world is, you know, insanely difficult. And then it's just one of like a sea of books that go out at the same time. And unless you're sort of like a literary industry darling, um, which you sort of have to have gone to certain schools and sort of write in certain ways or be interested in, in certain in certain things in order to, to do that, unless you're that, you, you really won't get a huge reaction from it. Um, I still do get some amazing emails and letters and like little little notes that it's still out in the world and people find it and they read it and they say, like, I've never read anything like this, this is absolutely crazy. But to me, I, it had to be absolutely necessary. So with, with fiction, you know, it must be completely necessary. It must be that you just simply had to write this. Nothing could have prevented you from writing it. Um, and in that sense, I think that that's very important artistically. Nonfiction can be forced. Um, 
Of course, you don't want to be constantly forcing it, but you can force nonfiction. What I do now is is write mostly is write mostly essays on my Substack, the Intrinsic Perspective, and I've had some some great reactions to them, and a sort of a community has grown up around them, which I really appreciate. But I think a big a big part of that is that the the essay is sort of wide ranging enough that I can use some of the techniques from from fiction. So, you know, an attention to language, that sort of thing. And, and that is just n- not done as much, uh, particularly in sort of like the world of substacks. But just to briefly an- answer your question about like, you know, writing advice. Yeah. Um, one, one big thing that I, that I tell everyone is one, you have to have a very definite point of view. So most of the stuff that reads poorly is because you can't, find the author anywhere. They're not authoritative. They're not like making a pronouncement from the mountaintops. This is me. I'm very grounded in myself. Here's my opinion about this. That will lead to good nonfiction writing. If you don't know who you are, um, and if you can't express, and by that, I mean, within prose, right? I mean, the, <laughs> I don't mean to throw anyone into an existential crisis, but like, <laughs> if, if you don't know who you are when you're writing, that is probably the number one leading cause of, of bad prose. It, it leads people to write like their GPT-3, right? It's like a view from nowhere, right? It's sort of this like right. bland nonsense where you're just sort of copying what other people have done. And this is generally the biggest thing that I, I, find, I find people run into. And then I also find that they try to create too much content. You don't need that much content. You don't need to be publishing every day, particularly if you're doing something like a newsletter. Um, instead, really focus on putting out really just the occasional really great piece. And that's what people want to read. People, there are very few people who you actually want to hear from every day and can give you something original and interesting every day. Um, Very, very few people, maybe none. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, so just have a stronger quality bar for publishing is, is one thing. Yeah. You should sit on stuff for a little while to make sure that it's, it's something that that you you would be really proud to show people and, and that you're really excited about and and that's very difficult because then you need to come up with a hundred of those right and you know and if you do one a week right that's your two years of running a blog or something like that and then you need to come up with a 100 of those yeah so it's very you know it's 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 very difficult to do but i've i've been very lucky and and um had a really wonderful reaction to sort of my move to writing writing online on this on this Substack, and I, I have enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, and I also love that it's it's it is an even playing field. I mean, I, I it's this incredibly steep one, right. but it is an even playing field. Like most of the ones, most of the blogs that I follow that are that do well and put out consistent good content do eventually get subscribers and readers and yeah. people who are interested and a community grows up around them. Like most, like I, I've almost never seen a blog that's been running for a while where I look at like how well it's doing. And I think, Oh, it's, it's totally not where it should be. It's like, if it runs for long enough, it almost like always finds sort of where it, where it should be. Fairly efficient over time. That's cool. That's cool. Can you talk about the the publishing industry a little bit and, and kind of the, the process of, of publishing your book and, and kind of what you learned along the way? Well, I actually just had an essay out on this um, uh, called secrets of the publishing industry. And, you know, 
the, the publishing a book is an incredibly convoluted and long process. I mean, over years, I think, you know, the book had been finished for maybe four or five years by the time it came out, although there were some last minute edits, but you're basically finished. So this is a glacial process. And it's also a very difficult process. Most of the time, people will not get published. Um, I don't think that there is a huge significant difference between the manuscripts that get published and those that don't. Um, I really haven't observed that. I think probably there's, there's probably more, there's probably some really great unpublished manuscripts hanging out in the US. I'll, I'll tell you that from, from, from what I've seen of the process. <laughs> and it is very convoluted and you have to do a lot of things yourself from getting like blurbs, like, you know, you, your, your publisher probably is not going to go out and get you a bunch of blurbs from like famous authors. You have to do that, which is crazy. It's like, how, how do you, how do you find and approach like famous authors? Right. So it's like, for example, like I went to, I, I, I went to like Peter very early on. I went to Peter Watts. Peter Watts is one of my favorite sci-fi authors. He's the author of Blindsight. He won the, he won a, a Hugo award. I think um, he's, he's, you know, he's, a, he's an excellent writer. Him and I had briefly corresponded. I basically begged him. He was incredibly kind enough to, to read the book and offer a, a blurb for, for me. And then, uh, okay, now I have a blurb from a Hugo Award winner. Now can I go and, and talk to somebody talk to somebody else, right? And say, okay, here's this blurb, right? And that is at the very beginning, but that shows you like the, the degree of time and intensity of, of just trying to get the book out there. And then, um, you know, when, when the, the, the book did come out, I didn't, I didn't make a huge amount of money um, I didn't sell it for a huge amount of money, but the publisher did a pretty good print run. So they were sort of like, this was like a, you know, a, not, not maybe not their lead book going out, but it was pretty high up there in terms of their, their concerns. Right. And as an example of this, like Barnes and Noble bought three for every store in America. So I thought, okay, this, this is going to get reviewed. Yeah. Right? Like this will, this will be reviewed. Absolutely. Someone has to notice this, right. I just assumed that reviews happen. Right. And that turns out to not be true at all. So oh, people don't just review a book just because it's like nationally published and you can walk into Barnes and Noble and find it, right? So instead, what happens is that there's all these publicists and the publicists basically, you know, interact with the book reviewers. And this has to take place years before. Oh, like, man. Like, like seriously. So, 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 so a book reviewer at like a major outlet will not review like a book that they just learned about six months ago. They have to have known oh, about man. this book for like 18 months minimum and I have to have received a copy and like everything's planned. And like, so, so I, I didn't get bad reviews. I actually got a couple, a handful, a small handful of really good reviews, but I just got no reviews because I just had no idea that the way that this process works is, is generally just through these in-house uh, publicists. And uh, you need a really big book deal to have a really good publicist. Or, or a, a lot more commonly, people will just hire a private publicist um, and, and pay a lot of money for it. And that private publicist will, will then promote their book. But again, you have to do that years out, right? You can't even do it last minute. Um, and it's surprising who uses private, you know, a private publicist. Like you might think, you know, Thomas Piketty, you know, famous yeah. sort of uh, anti-capitalist author doesn't use a private publicist, but you would be wrong. <laughs> So you really need someone plugging it and doing that a long time before the book comes out to have even a shot. Yes. So, you know, my my having witnessed like the total insanity of this pipeline. Yeah. Um, 
I, I, I actually am writing another nonfiction book right now that's already sold. So I've already nice. been through the process a whole second time. So I can't say like, I'll never do it again. Like I, I literally did do it again. But um, there's a very good reason to think that, I'll just be honest, I think Substack is going to eat these people's lunches. Like uh, these people have no idea what's going to come. And people have finally sort of cracked the code. People are reading more and more online. And this is where literary life is going to be. It's going to be online. It's going to all be online. I'm curious, in this process, have you encountered kind of the uh, MFA mafia? I have this idea that uh, the MFA <laughs> programs have this. Sh- <laughs> I've never heard that. I've never heard that, but that's funny. <laughs> well, you, you know, I was, an, I was an English major in college and I always had this sinking suspicion that, um, you know, it, it just seemed uh, George Bernard Shaw has this line like, um, you know, uh, it's just something about, you know, professions being a conspiracy against the laity. And um, I, I just find MFA, it, it's, it seems like, it always seemed to me like if you wanted to write the great American novel, you go lock yourself in the woods in a cabin and, and start typing, you know, and you do that for a year. You don't go and uh, get an MFA and, and learn and, and get this like credential. It just seems so antithetical. I don't know. Can, is that completely off base? And, um, you know, how has your experience been with the MFA mafia? <laughs> um. You know, now that it's basically a requirement to get an MFA, there are some serious downsides to having this be the main the mainstream of literary culture. So the first is that the academization of literature itself. So the simple fact is, is that these are all people who are coming through the academy, right? So they are academics. They're not even really writers, right? They're they're more academics. Um, that's that's closer to their fundamental self-image, right? Most, the number of writers who actually make a living from writing novels is so vanishingly small. Most people are either professors of writing or they have support from their spouses and they don't actually make like a full, they're not like supporting a huge family from from writing, right? The number, there are some people who do that, but it's, it's vanishingly small. Even most of the sort of authors that you'll find at your local bookstore just aren't at that level of supporting their writing. So that means that what are they? Well, they're professors, they're academics. And that is a very dangerous thing for, for, an, for an artistic discipline to be fully, fully academic. Um, it leads to solipsism. It leads to sort of the most successful people being the exact same sort of people who can jump through all the standard academic hoops and score high on all the tests that you need to, to get there. Right. I mean, publishing a book is much more now like the end step to a process that starts when the person is in third grade. Right. It's like that's that, that publishing a book is sort of, it's like a bunch of hoops from third grade on. And then, you know, eventually you jump through enough of them. You sort of get to publish a book because you got into the MFA program at Columbia university and you got into that because you did well as an undergraduate and (laughs) as your undergraduate, you went to, you went to Harvard and you got into Harvard because you jumped through all the hoops in high school. Right. So it's, it's sort of like this, 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 it, you've attached literature to the end tube uh, of this, you know, massive pipeline. And uh, the, the idea that that doesn't have any effects is I think ridiculous. Now, does it completely, I, I wrote actually an essay precisely about this, you know, wondering about the effects of the MFA 
literature. And, you know, one thing people said was like, you know, it is absurd to think that the MFA system by itself is sort of completely determinant of contemporary literature. And, and I agree with that. Like c- contemporary literature is not solely determined by the fact that it has an MFA. But I think the trends in it are broadly speaking determined by this. And one of the the big sort of p- future pits that I see is that in, through this academization, um, it, there's a slow bleed of public interest. And eventually what, what, what happened to poetry will happen to, to literary fiction. So essentially, no one will read novels anymore. Right. Um, and no, no one reads poetry. Like, it just, yeah. again, you could say, well, poetry survives within the academy, but it's like, it's a zombie, right? It has no cultural impact or significance right. other than in the rarest of events, right? Um, so it's completely sort of dead as a discipline. And... Um, and that's sad, right? You can say that that's quite sad. But uh, my fear is that the same thing will happen to literary fiction, where it just, it just becomes more and more niche, written by more and more of the same people, until eventually it's just academics talking to each other. And the whole thing is just a, a game that, you know, just like now, most poetry that's put out are books by professors of poetry. That's the only people who really seriously publish poetry books. Right, right. Or at least that's the that's the majority of it. Um, and you know, I think that something like that might eventually happen to literary fiction if it sort of continues down this path. Um, and this is, I don't think it's super controversial, but strangely, I think because anything in the literary industry is just uh, it's one of the most you know like terrible toxic communities um, <laughs> online. I don't mean the entire right, right. literary yeah. industry, but like 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 what you call like like literary Twitter is yeah. a really terrible toxic place. And so any little sort of criticism of it is like, you know, you're criticizing an absolute insane person, right? So any right. small thing that you say will be blown up, you know, immensely Destroyed. or so on. But that just means like, basically I just don't really... I don't really have anything to do with, yeah. with 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 those people, and I don't think that I need to in order to make my living and way as a writer. I don't think I need to really interact right. with them very much. Definitely. Well, it, it also seems like uh, kind of like you said, like all these hoops you put together and you have to have a master's degree really limits the uh, perspectives you get in, in literature. Yeah, and, I should say there, there are some contemporary writers that like I really oh, yeah. like and enjoy. Right. Like, but David Foster, but I, Foster Wallace. The, 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 they're not play, really who I'm yeah. talking about when I talk about literary Twitter. Right. I'm not really right. talking about necessarily the authors even. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so there, there are some, uh, I just want to throw that out. Yeah, there. absolutely. Absolutely. Not all bad, but yeah, you know, the overall structure can, can lead to some negative effects. Um, are you down for a quick round of overrated or underrated? Uh, sure. Awesome. Awesome. So I'll throw out a term. Just give me a sentence. It's overrated or underrated. So the first one is, uh, integrated information theory, overrated or underrated? Probably underrated. Awesome. Yeah. Underrated. The, um, the free energy principle, Carl Friston's theory, overrated or underrated? Overrated. I mean, overrated? Massively overrated, I think. Um, no, no one has given an adequate solution to the darkroom problem, and there's no demonstration that the brain currently works by minimizing free energy. There's just, it, there's just no actual evidence for that. But um, Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I, I, I think it's it's extremely freewheeling and that makes me extremely suspicious. Like when everything is connected and 
when someone like Carl Friston is the mid author on like a million different papers that I'm not even sure he read all of, um, you know, it just makes me a bit suspicious of something like that. That's good. Um, one last one, bookshops overrated or underrated. Oh, underrated. I love bookshops. Um, booksellers like, you know, what, what's a town without a bookshop, right. To go into. Um, I, I, I think bookshops are some of the most wonderful places on earth and the people who run them are some of the best people on earth. Um, and they really are providing like an incredible sort of, mm, cultural service to, to, to the rest of us, because it's not a business where you make a huge amount of money, right? right? It's something you get into because you really love it. You can make money, but like, you know, you're not, it's not, you're not, you're not selling hotcakes. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I love it. Um, well, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Where can people find you? Where should we send them? Uh, yeah. If you, if you go to, Eric Howell, E-R-I-K-H-O-E-L dot substack.com. That's the best way to, to keep track of me. Also, you can just type in the intrinsic perspective uh, or just my name into Google and the substack will crop up. But, but please, if you, if you can sign up for it, because it really is the best way to keep track of me. And I, I really do. Uh, I really do have a lot of really interesting things planned for it. Highly recommended. Well, um, I'll put the links down in the show notes. Eric, thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.